Chatter rumbled off the convention center walls, cresting and fading as thousands of librarians filed in and out of the show floor between talks and panel discussions at the Texas Library Association conference. It was April 4th, 2018, almost eight months after Hurricane Harvey destroyed the Lone Star College Kingwood Library, and the Kingwood crew was hunting. They were hunting down library equipment, seating, tools, space configurations. They were trying to figure out what should go into their library. Now, they may not admit it outright, but these ladies are driven, and they're at least a little competitive. There's a reason when they joke about working on committees at the Lone Star College system that the joke is they're always the committee heads. I tell you that because it helps explain why they weren't looking for chairs they could make do with or bookshelves and cabinetry that would simply replace those they'd lost. They were looking for the best damn library chairs they could find. They were looking for technology and layouts that would transform their workplace into an on-campus hub. This is patron-driven, crowdsourced library stories where the personal and the professional meet. I'm Mark Dirks. And I'm Bill Mickey. We work for Choice, a publishing unit of the Association of College and Research Libraries, a division of the American Library Association. This season, we investigate how the Lone Star College Kingwood Library recovered from extensive flood damage brought on by Hurricane Harvey. This is episode four of five, Vision Tours. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, stop now, go back, listen to them. The episodes build on each other, and there's information in the others that informs this one. Part 1, Texas Library Association Conference. Mika, Allison, and Jennifer wandered up and down long show floor aisles in a clump, passing displays of shelving, couches, and plush chairs. Publishers stood, arms clasped behind their backs, bright-jacketed books, Lego-towered on tables before them. Jennifer tested out a display of stair-style seating, and they chatted about what made the most sense for their space. What were the problems? How would the blocky steps transform the library? Would students actually lounge on it, or would it just accumulate unshelved books? Questions bounced from Mika to Jennifer. Allison chimed in with an opinion, and ultimately, they moved on. They never wound up with the trendy stair seating. But another display caught their collective eye, a book scanner. Now, a book scanner may sound like a simple device, but the Knowledge Imaging Center Book I-4 bears basically no resemblance to the integrated scanner printer fax machine you may have in your home office. The Book I-4 was all fancy touchscreens with big welcoming buttons and a camera with resolution high enough to tantalize National Geographic. The Kingwood crew circled the contraption. One of them pressed scan on the touchscreen. A bar of light burst from the boxy overhead scanner and tracked along the pages of a book cradled in the 45-degree tray. When it reached the book's edge, the light snapped off and a lifelike image of the facing pages filled a high-resolution LCD screen. They huddled around examining the picture. It looked flawless, an exact reproduction. Gears turned in their minds. There were real possibilities for the scanner. One of them snapped a picture and texted it to Anne, who had opted not to come to TLA. The Kingwood crew wasn't really certain what they could afford or how much freedom the system's administration would give them or how much say they'd have over what went into the library. But Mika had suggested they compile a list of ideas, that they dream big, and that's what they were doing. 
They spent two days at the TLA conference, testing products and comparing notes. They jotted down their favorites, snapped pictures, and texted them to Anne. The air around them buzzed with deals struck and professional relationships strengthened. They moved from booth to booth, eyes occasionally widening, jokes pattering back and forth between them. Allison tried out a roller chair and found it surprisingly comfortable. Plus, the seat folded up, lowering its storage profile. Nods went around, lips pursed. Someone snapped Allison's picture in the chair. They liked the idea of large, touchscreen monitors for group study rooms. Snap, another picture. And that's how it went. They accumulated shots of everything, from integrated shelving and couch units to old-fashioned paper card catalogs. Ideas brimmed up. Hazy imaginings coalesced. Their time at TLA was one of the first of what they would come to call their vision tours. They took 10 or so excursions to other academic libraries in and around Houston, where they talked with library directors and staff about what they liked about their layouts and equipment and what they didn't. If they were thinking about a new technology and they noticed some other place had it, they asked how it worked. What were the upsides, the drawbacks? So I think that administration and, and the library and us, the library staff, I think that we knew that this was our one stop, that we yeah. probably won't get another renovation for 30 years. So we took it very serious. They, the mm-hmm. library we knew was going to be the last building that was going to be complete. So we knew that if we didn't do it right this time, that we would not get a second chance. The vision book was actually the brainchild of Mika, which I think was like the greatest thing ever. Mm-hmm. She came to us and she was like, let's start, let's put a vision book together. That way when we go before the architects, because we knew that the other divisions and um, they were um, seeing the architects at that point, she said, let's do it. So that way we're ready. And we we're like, that is a fantastic idea. And that's when we started going to the different locations, um, the different campuses, college campuses, both university and, and um, community colleges across you know, Houston. Mika, Ann, Allison, and Jennifer had been getting to know each other for years now, first as colleagues, and then after Harvey, as fellow survivors and compatriots, scrunched into the close quarters of a storefront window or a four-seat library. We all went through a traumatic experience, and even though we didn't react to them the same, I mean, we still, that is one thing that no one, that, that we share, that not everybody else shares, right? Um, right. I mean, it's traumatizing. It is. I think a little bit of, I think we all go through a little bit of post-traumatic stress because of Harvey, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and then we were in such tight-knit, we got to know each other real well. Yeah. <laughs> real well. So, yeah. And we got to we got to learn how to ignore each other real well, too. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, I mean, it was, you know... It was a lot of give and take, and it took it, it took a lot of adaptability, yeah. which was hard for some, but then really easy for others. I mean, we really learned how to deal with each other's personalities. The vision tours also brought them together. The tours forced them to argue about what the library should be and how to get there. What was the library's mission? How could they best achieve it? All of the stuff they agreed on, those things made their way into the vision book. Part two, the vision book. The vision book was Mika's idea. Her mom was an industrial designer back in the 70s, and she advised Mika to tell the architects and designers what the problems had been with the old library. That way, they could design solutions to them. But the Lone Star crew took the idea farther. 
they wrote their aspirations into the vision book. When I first started hearing about the vision book, I was intrigued. I thought it might be a little notebook. I studied writing in both my undergraduate and graduate degrees, and there were plenty of young folks carrying around moleskins. A couple of my drinking buddies kept tiny notebooks in their back pockets or in their breast pockets on their shirts. They'd jot down choice phrases or sketch out quick scenes over a bud and a whiskey. So that's what I thought when I thought of the vision book. Oh, no. I think I sense a Dirk's deep dive coming on. So that's what you're calling these things now? Nah. Really, I just call them triple Ds. It's catchier. Right. So, as I was saying... And if we're going to give it a name, it ought to have a sting, don't you think? A sting? Yeah. You know, like a noise that lets listeners know we're doing that nerdy thing where Mark goes into an obsessive detail on some small, mundane, or nerdy topic that he finds super interesting. Ah, yeah. A sting. So how about this? What about this one? Or what about this one? Yes, that's it. Let's go with that one. Cue it one more time. Music to my ears. We can use it whenever you go off on one of those tears. Sure, Bill. Thanks. All right, Mark. Carry on. So... As I was saying, there may have been a little moleskin going on. Mika does carry around a notebook, and there are pictures of her jotting things into it on their vision tours. But the vision book they sent to us is something more thoughtful and useful than a moleskin. In the end, Mika compiled a 70-plus page PDF of complaints about the old library and ideas for ways to solve its problems. They branded the title page with a Lone Star logo, which is a great big star with a curving swoosh through the center. In great big letters at the bottom of the page, it says, Design Vision Book with the catchy subhead, Building the Future Library. Reflecting on it, I'm pretty certain the branding's a good move. It says right away, we recognize we're part of this bigger system and our ideas align with the system's needs, which is a pretty good way to open with any boss. On page two, there's a list of 19 big ideas in a red box. I won't give you all of them, but they range from the straightforward things like functional and safe, to others like noise management, natural light, and calming space. The book's broken down into two sections, employee space and student space, with subsections for each of the library's functions and uses. Each subsection employs the same three headings regardless of whether the space is for students or staff. Those headings are problems, needs, and sample ideas. This last section is I think the most brilliant. It's one thing to point out the problems at work. At our office, if we ever get to go back, everyone knows the printer jams, but nobody takes the time to think about why it does and then to propose a solution. If there's one thing the vision book is chock full of, it's solutions. It follows that old work adage about bringing your boss answers, not questions, and on top of that, it's lavishly illustrated. Maybe not with magazine-quality photos, but with pictures from catalogs and action shots from their vision tours. There's one of Anne standing in the break room at the Houston Community College Central Campus. Her long blonde hair splits over her shoulders and a great big smile opens up her face. One hip's cocked out and her hands are on her waist. To her right, a faucet and counter. Beside her, a neat little break room table with four chairs. 
In the vision book, that picture is labeled simply HCC Central for Houston Community College Central Campus. But in the 400 or so pictures Mika and Jennifer sent to us, it's titled Break Room Sassy Ann. And I think that's about right. The vision book's full of pictures like that, where the image illustrates something useful to the library, a scanner or a novel reference desk set up at another library. But sprinkled throughout, you get glimpses of the people who put it together. You see their faces. Some of the shots are almost candid. In one, Jennifer is clearly raising her phone to snap a picture, but she becomes part of someone else's photo, one that captures the substantial storage space in the circulation room at the Houston Community College Eastside campus. If I had to guess, I'd bet Anne snapped that one. The vision book highlighted the previous library's deficiencies and, more than anything else, provided a roadmap for overcoming them. Part three. Now, was it Nietzsche or Kundera? Back in Kingwood, the library was dry, and the fans and dehumidifiers were gone, but bare steel studs skeletoned offices. Blackman Mooring had cut the drywall away from the concrete floor to about six feet up the wall. The space was a vast, subterranean dungeon. Light filtered in through windows and glared down from occasional work lights, but otherwise the space was dark and shadowy, concrete gray. But there were students to serve and faculty to help. Anne and Allison divided their time between the LSC North Harris campus and Kingwood. At North Harris, they inventoried the stacks, putting books in call number order using a spiffy formula Anne had cooked up with one of the librarians. Anne spent most of her time there, and Allison most of hers in the Kingwood bookstore, but sometimes they switched off. Anne parked her computer on a TV tray outside the Student Conference Center Library, room SCC-252, beside a power outlet, and she'd work there. One of the things I kept in my car was a TV tray table um, that I picked up from Walmart for $14 that became my lifeline. Everywhere I went, I just set up the TV tray with my laptop, and everywhere we went, uh, that TV tray went with us. Um, (laughs) It was... And you can imagine times how many uh, employees, because OTS saw the TV tray and said, okay, we're going to do that too. They went and got TV trays and did the same thing. I say TV trays, the kind that uh, you eat TV dinners on. Um, Everybody was carrying around a TV tray and a laptop at one point. Mika applied for grant funding to buy new carts and other supplies for the library. On March 1st, the four-seat SCC-252 library got a new cabinet to house the few reserve books they kept on the Kingwood campus. Jennifer organized an e-book presentation from EBSCO Library Services, since they were looking to add more electronic books to their collection. At the end of March, Mika got good news about her grant application. So, you can see there was a lot going on but not a lot of the normal day-to-day stuff that occupied the library crew's work lives before Harvey. I think that's one of the lessons I take away from their story. Disasters change things. Right now, I'm writing these lines sitting on the couch in my sunroom at home, instead of at my desk in the office. We're at the end of the first part of the COVID-19 pandemic in Connecticut. The governor's easing the lockdown. Some businesses are reopening. All around me, I keep hearing on the news or in my socially distanced conversations with my neighbors that things need to get back to normal. I think that's a lovely idea, but having researched a disaster like the flood at the Lone Star College Kingwood campus, 
it seems to me, life doesn't go back to normal. In a way, I'm sort of angry that everyone around me keeps looking backward, wishing. Can't they see, as Dylan Thomas put it, the force that through the green fuse drives the flower? Life only goes on. You can see that forward momentum, that ever-changing nature, one of two ways. Nietzsche recognized that. Or maybe it was Kundera, I don't know. Days are either meaningless because they never recur, because there is no return, or they're meaningful. Because to paraphrase Jennifer, this is your one shot. Part 4. Vision Tours. From May 1st to May 18th, the Kingwood crew visited nearly a dozen other libraries in the Houston region. They visited four branches of the Houston Community College system, two branches of the San Jacinto College, as well as other Lone Star College campuses. They gathered and documented ideas for marketing library services, like the giant Are You a Maker banner at Houston Community College Central. They borrowed ideas for combining the circulation desk with the reference desk in one location from the Northwest Houston Institute Library. Their contacts there, along with their own years of observation, pointed out that students didn't know what the difference between circulation and reference was. If a student needed help, they went to the nearest desk. By centralizing that help, they could streamline their services. Each trip offered new ideas, taught them how to innovate library services, and helped them redefine what the library could become a makerspace, a gathering space, a private space, a studio space. At the Houston Community College Northeast Codwell, they saw an example of what's called a one-button studio. The one-button studio is a simple, studio-style audio and visual recording station. A gray screen hangs on one wall. There's a preset camera pointed at it with wall-mounted microphones and a computer. The idea is that all a student has to do to record a presentation or a scene from a play or anything else really is to reserve the space, bring along a thumb drive, and press the record button. The One Button Studio got its own section in the vision book. They put in their picture of the HCC East Codwell Studio and made the case for the multimedia room this way. We don't have one anywhere on campus. Students need a place to practice and record presentations, performances, and other audio and video needs. Oral communication is a component of the learning outcomes. Again, they're trying to align their requests with the larger institution's goals. On their vision tours, they got something more than just ideas. They got advice. Really what we were told to by some of the libraries that went through the remodeling was not only be on a united front, right? They said, pick and choose what's most important and battle for the ones that are most important. Don't battle for everything. Mm -hmm. Battle for what's most important, but give on some of the things that are less important. According to Anne's Hurricane Harvey timeline, May 18th was the deadline for visiting libraries. Between May 18th and the beginning of July, Mika took the lead on compiling the suggestions and pictures and pulling the vision book together. Again, according to Anne's Harvey timeline, she and Jennifer met with Mika on July 2nd and 3rd to finalize the vision book. Then they broke to celebrate Independence Day. After the holiday, they returned from their various barbecues and fireworks displays to discover that the library director, 
Anthony McMillan, had been transferred to the Atascacita Center Library, and Kaylee Vondervoor would lead the Kingwood Library. The change was a shock to them, but in retrospect, you can kind of see that it was coming. The university administration had been pushing to make the library into something else, a learning commons for a while, and they'd been looking to merge the library and the tutoring center into a single department. I imagine Kingwood could realize efficiencies through such a move. So, the change looks like part of a larger organizational strategy. You should also know that before she came to Kingwood, Kaylee headed up the Atascacita Center Library, and during the aftermath of Harvey, she had been instrumental in helping the Kingwood faculty get up and running online. So, she's not an unknown quantity to the Kingwood crew. But if you're on the ground working in the library, it's a really big deal. One more change to roll with. But even more than just a change, it threw their whole strategy for advocating for themselves and their library into question. And it came to us in a bit of a shock. It just was sort of out of the blue. Um, But I think in the long run, it's been... uh, the best thing in allowing us to get what where we are today. Kaylee started at the library on July 9th, the Monday after the holiday, and two days later she called a meeting with all of the full-timers to, as Ann put it, discuss the possibility of reorganizing the library space to include tutoring. Ann's timeline makes the whole situation sound like there was a possibility the library staff could reject the idea of bringing in tutoring, but looking at it from the outside, I'm not so sure that was a realistic expectation. The administration was reinventing the library, not just rebuilding it. And that takes different leadership. I think it probably helped the situation that the library staff knew Kaylee, and her ability to make the staff feel included and empowered during the transition speaks to her ability as a leader. When the group agreed to bring tutoring into the library, it meant they would have to immediately rethink their vision of the rebuild, because the next Monday, they were scheduled to meet with the architects and designers. Part five, the most important meeting in the library's history. Or is it meetings? Anne's note in her Harvey timeline for the July 16th meeting is brief. Library design meeting in ADM 105 with the architects for library design. We met after the presentation in SCC 252 to discuss colors and furniture options. But that meeting meant a lot more to them than Anne's brief jot suggests. Ever since their library drowned under 42 inches of black water, they had been thinking about how to rebuild it. According to Anne's Hurricane Harvey timeline, they had their first library design meeting back on November 2nd, 2017. That's more than nine months of planning and hope and change. Kaylee and Mika were the only library representatives at the architect meeting, as far as I can tell. The campus president, Dr. Catherine Person, was there, as was the campus vice president for instruction, Dr. David Beatty. The architects and designers took the lead, opening with some ideas based on the old library design and how to replicate it. Kaylee understood that her staff had a vision for the library and what it could be, and she advocated for them as much as she could, but they needed to get the architects and designers to listen to them. As the meeting progressed, she and Mika began to walk the architects through some of their main ideas for the library. The space needed to be safe, inviting, beautiful. Power outlets mattered. The floor plan couldn't be static. Students shouldn't have to adapt to the space's structure. It should adapt to their needs. By the end of the meeting, the architect was nodding, and they felt like they were getting through to him. Of course, 
They didn't leave the meeting without an assignment. After it, they marched upstairs to the makeshift library and talked through the furniture options. They worked through a whole palette of colors. That's what Anne recorded. But that meeting wasn't their last with the architects. In fact, the next meeting would prove even more consequential. The next Monday, the architects returned. And this time, all of the full-timers were invited. Anne, Allison, Jennifer, and Mika, as well as Kaylee and the full-timers from tutoring. Dr. Person was there, as was Dr. Beatty. They all expected to see a new design based on the ideas that Kaylee and Mika had worked so hard to get through to the architect and designer. The architect wore a dark suit with a starched white shirt and a bow tie. Everyone else was in their work duds, button-downs and khakis for the gents and blouses with optional cardigans for the ladies. Now, ADM 105 isn't huge. It's what I think of as a medium-sized conference room. You know what they're like. Big central table, campus-related artwork on the walls, one of those drop-down projection screens you control with a remote or a switch on the wall, gives off a faint mechanical whir as it lowers. You've seen rooms like it a million times, on the job and in movies and stock photos. It's the Ur conference room, the platonic ideal or the Jungian archetype of the conference room. You've seen it. So now see it. Everyone in the room is on their feet leaning forward or to the side to get a look at the drafting paper laid out in front of the architect. Water bottles and Starbucks iced coffees condense rings on the table's dark surface. The architect holds the curling paper flat with one hand and gestures a bit with the other as he walks them through the design. Reference desk, circulation desk, computer spaces, stacks for books. Kaylee asks a question and Mika jumps in with a follow-up. They had hoped the design would hew closer to the ideas they presented last time, but nothing on the page really looks like what they talked about in their last meeting. It isn't what the library staffers want to see. Fortunately, they brought a physical copy of the vision book. The architect flips through the pages, looking at the images, the lists of problems, the possible solutions. Mika starts talking. Whether she thought about the advice her mother gave her, I don't know, but it would make sense. The months of dreaming, visiting, planning, all of that hinges on this meeting. She walks them through why the 60 computers in the library aren't enough, how they can't even fit a single classroom in their computer lab, and the class sizes are only increasing. The furniture should be mobile. They want a centralized service desk. Others around the table nod. This is what they want their space to become. This is the vision first time I'd actually seen the architect and he was very wildly dressed and and it both impressed me and scared me because I was thinking oh my goodness what kind of patterns and colors are we're going to end up with at the library but they listened they listened very well to uh, what we were what we were suggesting very impressed now to be clear Anne's remembering the designer there not the architect and this time in this meeting Mika gets through to him. After the meeting, they got copies of the plans and marked them up with a host of ideas for increasing compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act, for making their bathrooms more child and parent friendly. All of those changes ultimately made their way into the Lone Star College Kingwood Library. When I talk with the Kingwood crew, I get the sense that something shifted for them after that meeting with the architects. When they talk about the time after it, they don't typically get worked up. There aren't any tears, or at least the tears aren't because of the hardship and the loss and the struggle they all faced. 
they are qualitatively different tiers. Before the meeting with the architects, their journey was away from Harvey. Every day was a scramble, an adjustment, an exercise, an adaptation. After the architect meeting, they've got something to look forward to. They're striving to turn their vision into a reality. But let's be clear, that meeting wasn't the end of the story. On seemingly random days, the designers would show up and ask them to weigh in on the furniture or the lighting or the colors, and they would have half an hour to get back to them, or maybe till the end of the day. I really think that they showed up and said, we need to make a decision by the end of the day today. And and that's, I think that was how it was driven. Okay. But, we, but it had to be beautiful. I mean, it had to be cohesive. It had to be beautiful. That was, I mean... Our president, she knew she wanted something that she could be proud of. And so it, that we made that a, a very big point was that we needed to go in intentionally to make this a very beautiful space. The changes kept coming. When did they ever stop? But now they were driving. They weren't exactly in control, but they were close. Next time on Patron Driven, Episode 5, Learning Commons. It was determined at that point that we would become, we officially now became the sixth division on our campus. So we are now called Institutional um, institutional Instructional Support. Sorry, Instructional Support. <laughs> it's still new. Patron Driven is a choice podcast. Choice is a publishing unit of the Association of College and Research Libraries, a division of the American Library Association. Huge thanks to Allison Huffy, Anne McGittigan, Jennifer Martinez, and Mika Mitchell, without whom we would not have known about or been able to produce this series. And a shout out to the Lone Star College system and the Kingwood campus in particular. I wrote this episode. Sabrina Kofer and Bill Mickey provided invaluable developmental edits. And Sabrina Kofer provided audio engineering assistance. I produced and engineered the episode. 